0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience, but a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today we'll be talking to Julie Berwald about the new book, Life on the Rocks, Building a Future for Coral, Coral Reefs the story of the urgent fight to save coral reefs and why it matters to all of us. Life on the Rocks is an inspiring, lucid, meditative ode to the reefs and the undaunted scientists working to save them against almost impossible odds. Well, Julie, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here.
0: So can you tell us, what do you do?
1: I am a science writer and, um, I write books mostly about the ocean. Um, my first book was about jellyfish and, um, oh shoot. Hang on a minute. I don't know how to turn that off. Oh, well, okay. Um, hopefully you can edit that out. I'm sorry. Um, my first book was about jellyfish and sort of the, as I looked into the world of jellyfish and what was happening to them, I discovered just the amazing science of jellyfish. Um, but they also reflected back on us a lot of the problems in the ocean. Some of the things that are happening with climate change, with ocean acidification, with coastal development and not taking care of, of what's in our seas. And, um, and so that book was, was a really exciting, um, for me to write, it also was. The subtitle is "The Science of Jellyfish and the Art of Growing a Backbone." So I had to switch from being a scientist, which I'm trained as an ocean scientist. I got my PhD in satellite imagery of the ocean um, to being a writer and stepping into that those shoes um, and and finding my voice as a writer and a little bit as an activist um, because there's a sense as a scientist, or there has been a sense as a scientist that um, you should stay out of policy. Uh, I think that's switching now. And we can talk about that later. But that book was really my first big foray into saying, here's what I see that's going wrong in the ocean. And jellyfish are my muse to be able to help explain that story. My next book is called Life on the Rocks. And um, it is a story of coral and coral are sort of and we'll we can talk a lot more about this but coral are at this critical place where they live very close to their thermal tolerance and as our oceans warm up uh, it's a really critical time for oceans. But as I was telling the story of the I'm sorry. It's a really critical time for coral. But as I was telling the story of coral, I realized there was a sickness in my own home um, with my daughter suffering from mental illness. And so this two stories become intertwined. And, and this is again, something that I feel really strongly about that science is not just an abstract objective thing, but it actually is a process that humans undertake. And as such, our emotions are part of the results of the science. They aren't part of necessarily the, you know, the outcome of experiments, but they're definitely part of how we interpret the scientific answers that we discover. And so I ended up winding the story of my struggle to be a mother with, of someone who had mental illness struggles with the struggles of what was happening to coral on our planet. And I feel like this, this way of telling science seems to touch people and i find that important and powerful and something that i love exploring
0: and what got you interested in ocean it's a
1: funny thing um i grew up in missouri which is the center of north you know of of the united states like almost as far as you could get from an ocean <laughs> ever and i think as um, kids we did go on a few like vacations to the beach but I never snorkeled or stuck my head underwater until I was in college and I went on a study abroad program to Israel um I was pretty miserable on that on that study abroad program I just didn't fit in with the people on my program I was I was unhappy. And there was a sign on the side of a building and it said marine ecology course over winter break, you know, sign up here. So I signed up because I, I, I wanted to get away from where I had been in Tel Aviv. So they put us on a bus and we went down to the Red Sea to um, the town of a which is on the Red Sea. And basically we got off the bus and they threw a mask and a snorkel at all of us and some fins in a, it's a very abrupt kind of Israeli, like no, no instruction way, just like get in the water. So I did. And it was like, I mean, it's kind of trite to say it, but it really felt like that scene in The Wizard of Oz when she opens the door into Oz and suddenly the world is in color. And I felt like that, like I put my face in the water and I was on this magnificent coral reef and there was so much going on. There were fish and and urchins and sea stars. And and there was this coral, which had created these like castles and they were so many colors and shapes and forms. And I, I couldn't believe first of all, that these were all animals, that this wasn't a forest where, where plants are the base of it, but animals were the base of it. And I felt like, I can't believe I live on the same planet as this, this incredible world that I had no idea existed here. And it changed me. It it, it changed everything for me. I, I, um, I finished that course and I said, I want to be a Marine biologist, which I know sounds silly. Like a, a lot of people say that, but I, I really did. And so I got myself into a bunch of, um, Marine ecology internships to try to give myself some more basic knowledge about biology. And eventually I got into grad school, but, um, I wasn't accepted into any labs that were working on coral, which is really, really what I wanted to study. Uh, and instead I, I had been a math major as an undergraduate. So um, I got into a lab that was working on some mathematical algorithms for satellite imagery of the ocean. And I studied phytoplankton. Um, and at the time, we didn't know, we knew already that carbon dioxide was changing our planet. Like this was the nineties. Um, and it was very clear scientists had established that carbon dioxide holds heat and we were pumping carbon dioxide into our atmosphere from burning fossil fuels. But the question was how much is the ocean buffering for us from that? There's a ton of phytoplankton in the ocean that perform photosynthesis. So they take up carbon dioxide and, mix it with water and light and make sugar. Um, but what is the amount of that? We didn't know. So that's what I was working on. And it was the first time we had these satellites that could look at the ocean and show us just kind of how green the ocean is, which is a proxy for photosynthesis. And um, and so it, it turns out that about um, between a quarter and a third of the carbon dioxide that's emitted from fossil fuels is absorbed by the ocean, and so we are, you know, we benefit from these this photosynthesis that's going on out in the ocean. But even more important than that, um, about ninety percent of the heat that is held by carbon dioxide in our atmosphere is transferred into the ocean. So the oceans are disproportionately absorbing the heat that we are adding to our atmosphere by burning fossil fuels. And if we didn't have the ocean, we would be in much worse shape than we're in right now. So um, yeah, that's where my dissertation came from. And that's kind of the story of how I got interested in the ocean.
0: And you already mentioned you had very interesting uh, uh, pathway in your career where you switched (laughs) to science writing. So can you just tell us how easy or difficult was it
1: yeah, I didn't know that I wanted to be a writer. In fact, the reason I was a math major in college was because I got really intimidated about writing. My roommate in college just happened to be a fantastic writer. Brilliant. And I read some of her writing in the first weeks of of college and I thought, "I could never write like that. That's so intimidating." So I literally just became a math major so I wouldn't have to, wouldn't have to keep up with someone who was a brilliant writer like her. Um, I, I said, I'm never going to write another thing. I'm just going to do math equations. Um, which looking back was really a waste of opportunities to have professors help me (laughs) become a better writer. But, um, so I did become, yeah, I became a math, major. And I said, I was never going to write again. And then I got my PhD in something that was pretty mathematic, but then I fell in love and got married. And my husband wanted to move to Austin, Texas, which is where we still live. And so I did have a postdoctoral fellowship and I brought it with me to, to the university of Texas. But um, I, during that postdoc, I realized I was really not that great at math either. I wasn't that great at pushing forward these algorithms on my own. And I th- this is true. I was in a yoga class and I was really contemplating whether I should continue to be a scientist or not. And there was a woman in the class who was working at this textbook company and it was really innovative. It was all online and it used lectures that were video lectures and used um. It used like cartoons and um, yeah graphics to to tell the stories of science in these textbooks, and I thought, wow, that seems kind of cool. So I applied and got a job there, and that's where I learned how to write Um, because working in textbooks, you have to learn how to use words really efficiently and to never waste a word. You don't have that much space and you really want to be as clear as you can. And I also got to um, learn how to be creative because we had all these animators who worked with us and I loved it. I loved telling science stories in ways that were interesting and fun and creative and and I I realized like that was what I wanted to do and so then I started slowly to write stories for magazines and then eventually you know I made this big decision to write um books
0: and what would you say to our student listeners and maybe early career researchers that might be contemplating uh, sort of the path that you've taken practice
1: um practice writing So I, you know, like I said, I was, I had let all my writing skills go really, really rusty during grad school and during college really. Um, and it wasn't until I started practicing writing that I learned how to do it. So in those years, when I was, when I was, um, still working at the textbook company. And I I worked at a couple different textbook companies. Um, And then when I was writing magazine articles, I started writing a blog and I don't think blogs are very cool anymore, but I'm not sure about that. Um, I actually still have the blog. So, so I don't know if anyone reads it, but I did commit to writing a blog every month um, and publishing it on my website. And I, Found the practice of finding like one story that I found really interesting in the science world um, and then turning it into something that I thought other people might want to read and that would be entertaining, really good practice. And I committed to like publishing once a month and, you know, I'd be sometimes writing on like July 31st at 1151, like trying to finish it, (laughs) even knowing no one may read it, but just committing to doing that once a month was great practice. And I think, um, in doing that, I learned to find a voice that I found interesting myself. You know, I, I've practiced being funny and, (laughs) and practiced being a little heart wrenching, gut wrenching. I practiced, you know, writing with emotion about things that were scientific. And, and so I, that's my biggest advice is practice. And if you can practice with someone else, that's also a good thing. I also joined a writing group and we would meet every Monday night and each Monday, someone would submit one piece of writing and my, um, yeah. And that was another great way to practice because I was not only forced to submit once every six weeks, there's six people in my group, but, um, you know, I got to read other people's work and, read it critically and try to come up with constructive criticism for them. And that's a great way to learn as well.
0: Oh, that's an excellent advice. Okay. So your latest book is The Life on the Rocks, Building a Future for Coral Reefs. So let's dive in. Oh, sorry for the pun. Let's dive in. I love in the, pun. the it's, it's great. <laughs> And can we start with a very basics to make sure that everybody is on the same page. So could you describe what exactly are corals?
1: Yeah, so coral are amazing. Um, they're animals like I said and they're really a way to picture it is a sea anemone or a jellyfish turned upside down and those are actually a coral's first cousins. So um, they're all part of this group called anthozoa, which means flower animal. And they're very ancient forms. They only have two um, cell layers. We have three. So we have an, you know, an, an endoderm, which lines our gut and uh, um, exoderm. It's not the right word. Endoderm, but sorry, I screwed up there. But anyway, we have an outer skin layer. um, And then we have a mesoderm, which holds all our organs. Well, the coral, jellyfish, and sea anemones don't have that middle layer. So they just have two cell layers. So they're very basic animals. They also don't have a full gut. They have one hole that's surrounded by tentacles and that acts as their mouth. Um, They take their food in, they sting it with stinging cells. And these stinging cells are just absolutely phenomena of the biological world. Um, They are little capsules which have sort of a wound up weapon tubule inside. Um, They have a little trap door that opens when there's a plankton nearby. And then the weaponry fires out of the stinging cell at 5 million times the acceleration of gravity. So if you can imagine dropping a pen, you know, down onto a table, that's one G that's the acceleration of gravity, but the stinging cell fires 5 million times faster, which is the fastest motion in the animal kingdom that we know of. And I just did some fact checking on this. <laughs> so I know it's true <laughs> for a story I wrote about jellyfish, um, And so jellyfish, the anemones and coral all have these stinging cells. It's what unites them in this phylum called cnidaria, but back to their kind of anatomy, they, so they, their, their tentacles are lined with stinging cells. They can fire at plankton and then, um, those, those stinging cells are, are poisoned as well. So they immobilize the plankton and then they move it into their mouth um, along their tentacles, and then it goes inside and it gets digested and whatever they can't digest comes back out their mouth. Cause they only have one hole. Um, and then they also have similar to us. They have nerves, they have a digestive system. They have, uh, you know, te- they have ways of sensing the environment, the chemicals in the environment. There's possibly even light sensors in the, for sure, in the jellyfish and sea anemones, probably in the coral. So they have a lot going on, just like we do, just like we do. What makes coral so special and sort of differentiates them from the other animals in their phyla is that they have teamed up with an algae. Um, and so they, when they're quite young, um, they'll eat some algae, but rather than digest it, they move it into their tissue, digestive tissue that lines their guts. And then the algae live there for their whole lives. And, um, the algae do what algae do. They photosynthesize and they take carbon dioxide and water and make sugar. And then they feed 90% of that sugar to the coral animal. And that is an amazing fuel source. Um, it is so much energy that the coral can then take that energy and use it to take calcium and carbonate out of the water and forge that into limestone. So this is, so then the coral create these limestone skeletons outside of their bodies, outside of their little kind of polyp bodies. And those limestone skeletons become the great coral reefs of the world. And so, um, and I should say this, coral polyps usually live, not all of them, but most of them live connected together into colonies. So it's like a bunch of sea anemones that have glommed together and they share, um, they can eat plankton and they do eat plankton and they share that nutrition among the the many polyps, but they get really most of their energy from the algae that live in their tissues. And, and, um, and then they build these, these skeletons around themselves for protection. And then those skeletons form, these great, brilliant architectural wonders that are the coral reefs of our planet. The interesting thing, there's a lot of interesting things, but one of the interesting things is that because the coral rely on the algae, they have to live in sunny places. And so they tend to live in the tropics, which are the sunniest places on our planet and, and have the longest day lengths. And they also have to live shallow, shallow in the ocean because the ocean, the water itself absorbs light. So we tend to get coral reefs surrounding islands or on the top of like underwater volcanoes or mountains and um, so that the coral can live close to the surface of the sea. And um, the coral reefs, so they're in sort of a band around the tropics and And they only take up less than a percent of the ocean's um, area. But because of these incredible architectural complexes that they build, they provide homes for a quarter of all marine life. And it's really hard to know how many species that is because every time we look in the ocean, we find new species. Um, And the oceans are just hardly, they're very poorly explored. But, you know, I've seen numbers between a quarter million to 800,000 species that rely on the coral reefs for some part of their life. So a disproportionate, a part of our, our planet's life depends on the coral reefs. And so they're, they're extremely important, um, at ecosystems, maybe the most diverse ecosystem on our planet.
0: So you mentioned this word holobiont. If I pronounce yeah. it correctly, so what's holobiont? Mean? Yeah. Uh-huh. So what does that mean?
1: So yeah, because of this intricate relationship between, our intimate and intricate <laughs> relationship between the coral and the algae, it's very difficult to talk about the coral animal without also talking about the an- the algae that supplies so much of its energy. And and so people have scientists started talking about this holobiont, which means the whole creature, animal and plant combined in when you talk about coral. And and actually animal, plant and mineral combined when you include the corals skeleton that it builds. So yeah, so this holobiont obion is, is a more complicated and sort of nuanced way to refer to the coral and, and acknowledging the fact that so much of its energy comes from the algae. And yeah, one more thing I didn't mention is that the places where coral live are these, these tropical parts of our planet. And because of the oceanography of our planet, those places t- are are really nutrient poor. There's not a lot of nutrients. And what I mean by nutrients are, are fertilizer. So <laughs> um, you can think of places that have a lot of nutrients as like a, a jungle forest where there's lots of leaf litter on the floor and that gets broken down by bacteria into the fertilizers that then the trees use to grow. So that would be a nutrient rich place. And then a nutrient poor place would be like a desert where there's not a lot of um, organic input coming in. So the same thing is in the oceans and the deserts of the oceans are are the tropics. And that's because the ocean is sort of a two layered system. The surface layer is where the sun is because like I said, the light doesn't permeate to the depths of the ocean. So um, that's where the phytoplankton are. But then when they die or when everything dies in the ocean, it, it sinks down to the the bottom, which is the, the deep layer. And that's where bacteria work on it and break it down into nutrients, into its, its fertilizer form. So that's nitrogen and phosphorus mostly that we care about. And th- there's no way to really get that nutrient-rich water from the deep water up to the surface where the phytoplankton need it to grow, except for ocean currents. And because of the way that ocean currents work, these places called upwellings, they mostly exist in the temperate regions. And that's why a lot of temperate regions are where we find the biggest fisheries. But in the tropics, um, there's not a lot of upwellings. So they're very nutrient poor. And the way, and this this is kind of part of what makes the algal coral symbiosis so cool is that the algal waste products, which are nitrogen and phosphorus can be fed directly to, I mean, sorry, the corals waste products, which are like P I guess, which is nitrogen can be fed directly to the algae, which needs all that nitrogen in order to grow. And so, um, and so they've, they've shrunken the whole ocean's uh, circulation system to just being within that single little animal plant symbiosis. And so the coral waste go to the algae, which it needs in order to grow. And then the coral photosynthesizes and gives its sugar to the coral, which it needs to grow. And so they've solved the problem of, of, of this nutrient poverty by teaming up. And then that became the great coral reefs of the world. Uh, so yes, so the holobiont—if uh, we consider it as this this incredible algal coral symbiosis—we we really have a better understanding of what the coral are doing out there, and um, and so it, it's it's a really useful way for for scientists to think about it.
0: So, what are some of your favorite coral reefs around the world? Well, that Red Sea, uh, <laughs>
1: the Red Sea reefs are are. It will always have a piece of my heart because those were the first ones I saw and the first place I saw that great diversity and, and they, you know, it's really cool because they, and I actually don't even talk about this in my book because there just wasn't room to talk about everything, but those reefs could be some of the last surviving reefs on our planet. Um, They are preconditioned to handle warmer temperatures because the Red Sea corals, Um, arrived there kind of recently and they had to pass through a a period of real warming in order to establish themselves in this, in the shallow seas. Um, And so it turns out they're really thermally tolerant. Um, I guess one of the things I haven't talked about yet is that when the seas warm by a degree or two uh, for, for an extended period of time, this incredible symbiosis between the coral and the algae breaks apart and we still don't understand exactly why, but the algae will leave the coral and we don't even understand the trigger. Like who says, is it the coral saying I'm warming up? I'm not feeling good. I'm feeling stressed out. I don't have the capacity to deal with anything besides myself right now. And it's, it feels this infection sort of by the coral, by the algae and says, get out or is it the algae that is kind of like, it's warming up. I'm not being fed as much nitrogen as I usually like to be fed by the coral. And this is not a good place for me to be anymore. I'm going to, I'm going to alert the corals immune system that I'm here and get kicked out because it's, it's better for me to be out in the ocean than in this coral. That's clearly getting sick. So we don't know which of those two things are happening, but it, that's the big problem for coral around the world right now. And um, we can talk more about that. That That's called coral bleaching because when the algae leave, they take their color with them and, and the coral is left looking cl- clear, just a clear piece, thin two layers of tissue on top of this white skeleton. And so the coral are bleached. Um, they also lose their nutrition that the algae used to feed them and they start to starve. So if the symbiosis can't be reestablished, the coral die, but in the Red Sea, one of my favorite reefs in the world, um, the coral are a little more thermally tolerant. The coral symbiosis with the algae seems to last a little bit longer. Um, also it is pretty far North. As far as reefs go. And so it's possible that Red Sea Reef may be one of the last reefs on our planet. Another really amazing thing is that the next uh, IPCC International, what does it stand for? International, no, Inter- Inter-glo- yeah, intergovernmental panel on climate change. Uh-huh. Um, the next meeting will be in Sharm el-Shek, Egypt, which is just on the edge of the Red Sea, where these incredible corals and coral reefs, they're really diverse. There's probably 400 species of coral that live there. So just miles away from that reef, people will be deciding on the future of coral reefs. So they're actually in a very interesting place politically in this moment as well. Um. Let's see, other reefs I love are, uh, well, the Coral Triangle. In um, The Coral Triangle is this place between um, Indonesia, the Philippines, and Papua New Guinea. And it's it's not exactly a triangle, but it's kind of a triangle shape. And that is the highest diversity of corals in the world. So somewhere around six or 800 species of coral live there. And it's magical, it's it's just an incredible place where the coral are vibrant and colorful and beautiful. And you just see something different every time you dive on those reefs. And then the last place to mention is probably the Great Barrier Reef off of the East coast of Northern Australia. And um, that's the largest barrier reef, it's the largest reef on our planet. It's actually made up of three thousand smaller reefs. It's fourteen hundred miles, so something like eighteen hundred kilometers, nineteen hundred kilometers long. And for for comparison, it's the size of Italy. Um, and and it's it's so big, you know. It, you have to almost remind yourself that these small little coral polyps and their algal symbionts uh, created it that they built it up, you know, molecule by molecule. Um, It's bigger than anything we humans have ever built. It's just this massive structure that you can see from space. And so just for its very um, existence, it's definitely on my favorite list.
0: So then how does the unhealthy reef look like and what kind of challenges are the reefs uh, facing nowadays?
1: Yeah, so climate change is definitely the number 1 challenge. Um we I described what bleaching is and bleaching happened to coral throughout history. Um if there was sort of a low tide and and the coral were exposed to more of the sun's radiation and warmth for, you know, a tidal cycle, um scientists observed that happening in the early 1900s. So, we that that probably happened over time. Um, but there was never the kind of it was more like, oh, this would happen almost like you know, we would get us humans would get a flu or something, you know, it's something that would happen, but you would recover. But for bleaching to become kind of pandemic, meaning it would happen on like a regional scale where all the corals would bleach. Or, or almost all the corals would bleach on a regional scale. We never ever saw that until the 1980s. And then it happened again in the 90s. And that's when scientists started to be alarmed. And then it happened again around 2006 and 2010, 2012. And basically since around 2016, we've been in a state of constant mass bleaching where huge swaths of reef will bleach. And so, as I said, the ocean has absorbed 90% of the heat that we've emitted or that carbon dioxide has been holding as we've been admitting more and more carbon dioxide. And so the oceans have already warmed roughly a a degree, almost a degree and a half. And the thermotolerance for the for the bleaching to happen is around two degrees for about four weeks. And so we've seen more and more episodes where that's happened. And, and when it's, it's unlikely there's any reef in the world that hasn't experienced a mass bleaching at this point. And um, yeah, the predictions are pretty bad by 2050. If we don't get climate change under control, um, 1% of the reefs are expected to be left. And so that's pretty dire, um, but I should say it's not over yet. And one of the things that scientists have been noticing is that every time there's a mass bleaching, there are also survivors. So you'll see a huge, huge swath where everything is white, but then stuck like, like very infrequent freckles are, are qu- colonies that don't bleach. And so something's going on there. Um, there seem to be some corals that have this kind of thermotolerance For the symbiosis has a, a thermotolerance. And so there's a lot of research going on into what allows these survivors to survive. And one of the things we know already is that thermotolerance can be inherited. So if you have two parents that have an offspring and both of those parents are Better at surviving at higher temperatures, their offspring will be better at surviving at higher temperatures as well. But one of the things we've also discovered is that there doesn't seem to be just a single gene for surviving higher temperatures. That it seems to be genome-wide, um, spread across the genome like butter, kind of across toast. Mm-hmm. Um, So there's not like one gene we could somehow transfer to coral reef and say, okay, cool. They're going to survive now. It's, it's more complicated than that. So that's, it's really the biggest thing, challenge facing coral. Um, Other things that coral are suffering from are declines in water quality I mentioned that coral live in these sort of deserty places in the ocean where there aren't a lot of nutrients. They like it that way. They've evolved to live that way. But as we've started agriculturalizing our land, there's been more runoff of fertilizer into the ocean. And that higher fertilizer seems to make the coral sicker, sick. Um, And so there's been an increase uptick in coral disease as the water quality has gotten you know l- less good for corals and so they do suffer from um a lot of diseases and that's really problematic. There's a really bad one right now that's sweeping across the Caribbean it's called stony coral tissue loss disease and um it's it's really it's really horrible um it sort of causes the coral's tissue to melt away. Mm. And a coral that's, you know, several hundred years old will die if it gets this disease um, in just a matter of weeks. And we still don't know what the causative organism is, what the pathogen is. Um, some people have found that if you use antibiotics and sort of apply it um in a cement around the edges of of the disease front on the coral, as it's as it's spreading you can you can stop it but it's not not a universal treatment it doesn't seem to work and and what's really bad about this this disease is that as opposed to other coral diseases which maybe strike one or two or three species this one seems to strike about 20 species and in the caribbean there's probably around between 40 and 60 species of coral altogether so it's a lot, it's a huge number of coral species that are being afflicted by this disease. And it started in Miami and it went down the Florida Keys and now it's jumped off and it's, it's going, it's spreading throughout the Caribbean now. And then the last thing that's really a threat to corals is illegal fishing. And, um, we have, you know, you can damage a reef by dragging a net across it or, um, there's ecosystem collapse when you take too many top predators off the reef as well. Mm. Um, so kind of like a Jenga pile, a reef is a complex ecosystem. And, and if you take out some of the top predators, you have changes underneath that. Um, and when you destabilize the herbivores on our reef, that can cause problems for coral because um, coral are always competing with not the algae, the fi- the small ones that live in their tissues, but bigger ones called macroalgae for space. And and so reefs can become overtaken by algae, these macroalgae, and and they can really squeeze out the corals. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a, another problem in in a lot of uh, developing countries. There's a problem with blast fishing, which is where um, fishermen who are who are driven to do so through poverty and other forms of corruption that keep them from making a fair living will use um, bombs to fish um, because it's cheaper and quicker. And um, that will cause huge, huge blast scars in the reef that uh, the coral reefs, they can't reestablish themselves um, on that kind of rubbly seafloor. And that, that was a, a problem I saw a lot when I was in Indonesia diving in the coral triangle.
0: Yeah, this is truly heartbreaking. So where should we focus our efforts going forwards? I think, you
1: know, our, our biggest efforts really ultimately the story of the coral reef is a climate change story. That is the most important thing we can do for the reefs, because if we can, if we can get the temperature of our planet under control, the coral, we can, we can restore some of the reefs that are, um, physically being destroyed through illegal fishing. And we can also work to deal with the water quality issues up here on land mm. that's that start up here on land. But if we don't deal with climate change, it's going to be a really, all of these other things are going to be really difficult, um, to, to have a, a major impact on the reefs. So yeah, I mean, my, my, my advocacy is to let your elected officials know how important it is. And, and I mean, if you think about this massive ecosystem that's under threat, I mean, hundreds of thousands of species, not individuals, but species whose lives are, are really at risk if we don't start dealing with climate change it becomes a really important story and one that is largely invisible to us up here on land. And th- and that's one of the themes of my book um, is that it's really easy for us to forget about the oceans. I mean, we're terrestrial creatures, it makes sense. We don't live in the ocean, but the ocean influences us and we influence the ocean and we are all on this planet together. We are interconnected. Um, one of the important things about coral reefs is that because they support so much life, In the ocean, they actually support a lot of life up here on land between a half a billion and a billion people rely directly on the coral reefs for their major sources of protein, the their diets um, come from fishing, and as we're starting to see reefs decline we're starting to see people who live near them and, and rely on them having to shift their diets to less healthy diets. And then with that, you have an increase in disease and malnutrition and undernutrition. And if our reefs decline, I mean, can you imagine a billion people losing their primary source of protein? That's, it becomes a real humanitarian issue. Another thing coral reefs do for us up here on land is they are the best barrier against storms um, that protect us like on land 97% of a storm's energy will be diffused by a healthy coral reef. And so like in the Bahamas um there was Hurricane Dorian. It was a it was a category 5 ho- hurricane that came roaring up to the Bahamas and it uh the southern part of that island was relatively unscathed because there coral reef there is large is pretty healthy and it diffused the energy and um people did not suffer as badly as they did in the other parts of the island where the reef had been more impacted and and was less healthy so we see examples where coral reefs protect us like really protect us from from storm damage and storms are only becoming stronger as we heat up our atmosphere so they're they're incredible um incredibly important to us.
0: So now thinking about the bigger picture, and I wonder if you could uh, maybe talk a little bit more about your advocacy efforts and why is it important for us to bring forward the stories, like the personal stories of scientists and to really, really get it out and open to get people interested in uh, issues like this?
1: Yeah. So I I think, I guess maybe I'll start with a little philosophy. Um, a long time ago, I read a book called the end of science and, um, it, it basically said that, you know, during the Renaissance science and art were interconnected and there were great strides made in art and science. Um, during that time, I mean, we think about, you know, kind of the, the idea of of Da Vinci, you know, who was an artist and a scientist and he progressed in in both both areas. And then we had the scientific revolution and 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 science and art got split apart. And we made great, great strides during that time as well. You know, science really t- it improved our human health, technologies evolved, you know, our our quality of life is is unquestionably better. Um in this this separation of science into just its own category. But this book that I read kind of claimed that until we bring those things back together, we're gonna stop making progress. And I, I see that happening in, in the ways that, especially through the recent pandemic, you know, science has been, it's been made fun of and it's been, it's been um, discredited. And I think it's because science got too far away from our human emotions, and and it became very remote um, from the lives that people live every day. And so I do believe that bringing science back in touch with art is is what needs to happen in order for us to make the next leaps forward. And in my own in in the book in. And it was almost like a microcosm of this. Um, when I started writing about coral, my daughter started getting really ill and I could, we couldn't understand what was happening. She, she distanced herself from all her friends. She started failing school, like not just a little, but a lot. And, and she, she just was shutting down. And, um, I was keeping a journal of everything that was happening to her because it was so alarming. And I was so Confused and and I didn't know what was happening to her, at the same time that I was working on these stories of coral and, but occasionally things would sort of like seem to to amplify each other. So my daughter, it, um, one hypothesis was that she was suffering from this autoimmune disorder, and it was affecting her her brain and 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 causing her mental illness, which we ter- it turned out to be OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, and it was, it was causing that to, to kind of really get very, very strong. And one of the hypotheses about what's happening to coral when they bleach is that there's an immune response in the coral where the coral, like I said, kind of turns against itself and kicks out these algae, um, the algae that are its very life source. And so I started to see kind of the ways that the sickness in my home and the sickness on the reef you know they weren't that different from each other there were these connections and then as i was telling the story i actually had the opportunity to go to australia to the great barrier reef to look at this one idea um, that they have for protecting the reef which is called cloud brightening and i got invited on a research cruise and the cruise was going to leave um march 23rd of 2020. in the meantime in my home my daughter was really shutting down more and more. And she realized she needed to go to a um, a residential hospital to work on her mental health. And her admission date was March 15th. So just a week before, but we all remember what happened like right around them. Oh, sorry, her admission date was March 17th. But on March 15th, we all remembered, or at least in the United States, we shut down on March 15th. And so all of these things started coming together. And then my, I was denied entry into Australia just after we had to drop my daughter off at this mental hospital and everything became connected like in time where our planet was shutting down. Um, my daughter had shut down and my trip to Australia shut down and, and it, it became so intertwined that I couldn't keep them separate from each other. The things all seem to echo each other. And I started writing um, after I kind of got over a bunch of shock and, and sadness. Um, I, I started writing and it was all connected together and these stories seem to amplify each other. And I I sent some of that writing to my agent, or sorry, my editor. And I was like, what do I do? Because these stories that were separate, like what was happening with my daughter and what was happening with the coral reefs, they've come together and I can't separate them again. And my editor was like, this is some of your most powerful writing. And let's find a way to make this work in the story of the book. And so we did. And I think it did work. And I think that finding these connections between things that are largely invisible, mental illness is so invisible. Like you, if you looked at my daughter, you wouldn't have known how much she was suffering. Like I said, terrestrial creatures, we often just forget about what's happening beneath the waves. But these things are so foundational. Everything rests on our mental health. Everything rests on the coral reefs health in the ocean. And so with without them, you know, it just like basic survival becomes just nearly impossible. So the stories come together and I hope they amplify each other. And I hope that the emotion of these things that were happening in my personal life help illuminate some of the stories that happened beneath the seas. And, and, um, and that was, that was my goal and, and, and trying, in in trying to share the story this way
0: now what i found it so powerful is that you sort of you're addressing your reader really on a very visceral level you know because everybody has issues in their life so that no, nothing exists in a vacuum isn't it so if something's happening with the ecosystem you cannot just take it out of the context
1: correct right and and i think we tend to think like ecosystem well that's really different from us but is it so different You know, and and I hope that we start to consider consider it that way. You know, we are interconnected on this planet together, and the reefs are great for telling us that. I mean, the reefs are the most interconnected, yeah, ecosystem (laughs) that exists, and things depend critically on each other.
0: So, what discoveries in your research for your book Life on the Rocks surprised you the most? I I mean,
1: I think the most surprising was this dorky one, which is maybe not dorky, but I mean, you know, I I remember I had heard about coral bleaching years ago, 20 years ago when it was first sort of noticed in the eighties. And I thought, um, well, surely we've figured out what causes bleaching by now. Or at least surely we've discovered like who throws the first switch? Is it the coral or the algae? And, and the fact that that is still mysterious to me, to us is it, it blows me away. I mean, I, I really feel like how could this very basic animal and this very really basic plant hold their, hold this mystery away from us for decades of really trying very hard to find out. Um, so when the scientists told me they still don't know, I, I, I mean, I was really astonished. Um, it seems like the thing we should know and we don't. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I guess we write that up to mystery, right? And, and just, there's some human hubris there too. Like, oh, we think we can figure everything out and this mystery still evades us. So that was one of the the most, and then, you know, one of the other cool things is that, and I, I didn't, a lot of the book is actually focused on all of the things that we are doing to to make coral reefs as healthy as we can, as they approach this climate change, um, major stressor that's facing them. And so one of the most amazing things was, was diving on this reef in, um, Sulawesi, which is in Indonesia, where there has been this incredible restoration project by the Mars candy bar company, which was also surprising. <laughs> um, but it's, 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 absolutely magnificent. And this, they have, they've restored reef in places where that blast fishing has, has um, degraded the reef. And when you dive on these restored reefs, you you just, it's astonishing how quickly the coral can come back within 18 months of putting in these, these sort of these structures, they call them reef stars, um, which stabilize the reef within 18 months, the reef is, is full of life and vibrant. And within three years, you can't even tell that there's been a restoration at all. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's maybe another thing that really surprised me was how resilient coral reefs can be if they're given the proper environment and, and the things that they need to, to be healthy. Um, and I guess that's, you know, that's incredibly hopeful.
0: Yeah. So now we understand the corals and the ecosystems are just so fascinating and just have so much in it. So imagine that you were traveling to some other world that has ocean and it's completely empty. So what kind of coral reef and animals which also live in it would you take with you?
1: I know this is a really hard question, right? Because because part of what makes coral reefs so magical is their incredible diversity, right? And so how I mean, you'd have to think of, of taking, okay, you'd have to think of taking the seeds for all that diversity with you. And, and I, I I think it's impossible. You know, how could you imagine taking a quarter million species with you on on some sort of, some sort of rocket ship to another planet? Um, But without that diversity, then the coral reefs are just, they're just a pale, a pale shadow of what they really are. Um, But if you're gonna like, pit my feet to the fire, I I mean, the the species that you'd wanna take or the genus that you'd wanna take are these these coral called Acropora, um, which seem to be like, which are the fastest, among the fastest growing coral. They are the the kind that seem to be able to become the most diverse, the fastest. There's 128 species in that genus alone. So if you took a few of them, hopefully they could like divide, you know, really proliferate fast. You definitely need to take some herbivore fish with you to eat. Um, Well, maybe you wouldn't have algae, so you wouldn't need the herbivore fish, but I have a feeling the algae would somehow show up somewhere along the way yeah you need some big predators you need some parrot fish I don't know how you could do it without it like I think there was an effort um, in the 70s this thing called biosphere where they tried to make a coral reef in the middle of the Arizona desert and the whole thing collapsed so you know maybe that's the lesson is like we've got this thing here you know we've got this incredibly priceless treasure here on our planet so let's just take care of it here you know trying to rec- recreate it somewhere else seems it just seems impossible that's but,
0: exactly yeah yeah just one one we have one planet so we need to take care of it
1: yeah <laughs> and it's full of so much treasure that i th- feel like we don't we don't acknowledge how much treasure already lives here um I don't want to go to a dead, dusty, cold planet, you know, (laughs) like, let's take care of what we've got here. There's so much, so much richness.
0: Well, this has been a truly fascinating discussion. So can you tell us what are we currently working on and what will be your next project? Okay. This is a
1: kind of scary thing for me to say, but um what I'm working on now is fiction, which is really like out of my um out of my comfort zone and i I never expected to be able to do it, but the story came to me and um I, I mentioned brief, oh my gosh, I don't know, I'm so sorry um I mentioned briefly that I was um, invited to go on this on this research cruise to do this thing called cloud brightening in Australia and the idea is that um, marine clouds are not as bright um, as clouds over land and if we could brighten them up a little bit we could reflect a little more solar radiation to outer space and underneath those more bright clouds you can have some local cooling of around a degree or two which is just what the coral need, right? To escape from coral bleaching. So they were doing this experiment where they were uh, aerosolizing, taking seawater and aerosolizing it and making it, um, letting the salt crystals from seawater float up into the low-lying clouds and basically making those clouds a little more glittery, which reflects sunlight away from the reef. And this idea um, is... It's kind of remarkable. And there are some scientists who've done some calculations and they've found that we could actually keep our planet um, at a degree and a half warming if we were to employ cloud brightening around the world. So the fiction story I'm writing right now is where a 16-year-old girl um, is just like fed up with the nations of the world not actually taking action on climate change and she develops a cloud brightener and spreads the idea around the world to these small island nations that are most at risk from climate change and um the planet actually starts to cool and then the nations of the world take notice and they see this discrepancy between the carbon dioxide coming into the atmosphere and the temperature of the planet starting to fall and uh it becomes a little bit of a thriller at that point (laughs) where, um, everyone's trying to figure out what's happening and she has to claim her place, um, and say, you know what you big nations, you don't get to make all the decisions any longer. So it's, uh, yeah, we'll see. It's a little, it's a, it's a, I'm, I'm pretty far along, actually. I'm hoping to finish it by the end of the summer and, and we'll see if, um, if I can get it published.
0: Oh, wow. That sounds super exciting. I hope, you, I hope you come and talk to us about it. When it's done. Okay. I would love to. <laughs> so where, where what's the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your books?
1: Um, so my, I, the best place is my website. It is Julie, J-U-L-I, there's no E on it, Burwald, B-E-R-W-A-L-D.com. And so all my information is there um, about Spineless, my first book, Life on the Rocks, my second book, and, and that blog I was even mentioning that I wrote a long time ago. And then I've, I've been doing a lot of speaking, both virtual and in person. Um, so you're welcome to come join me at any of those events um, or, yeah, read read what I my, some there's reviews, lots of stuff is on there. So JulieBurwell.com.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh my
1: gosh. Thank you for having me. I'm really delighted to be part of this and thanks for the great questions. Um, It was a really fun conversation.